You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, hey, good morning, North Canton Chapel. You just heard the scripture uh, that we're going to be in this morning, Luke chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 8, but I want to give you a minute to turn there in your hard copy of God's Word, or uh, you can use the Version Bible app on your phone. That's the one I use, and I know a lot of you like it as well. I'll give you a minute to get there. Luke chapter 2 is where we're going to be, uh, or if you like, you can follow along on your screen. Everything's going to be there for you this morning. So everything around Christmas time seems to hover around this idea of joy. Right? So what I want to do this morning is, uh, sorry, I just gave you one thing to do. I'm going to give you another thing to do. Um, in the chat feature, uh, so everybody can see it this morning in our worship gathering, I want you to go ahead and put something in the chat feature that uh, reminds you or makes you feel joyful this year around Christmas time, right? What makes you feel joyful at Christmas time? So just while your thoughts are circulating and percolating, I'll give you a couple ideas that I've found this year um, that make me feel especially joyful. So um, first off, I've seen joy lit up in storeroom windows. I've seen it sewn into stockings on the, above, above our fireplace. I've seen it on coffee mugs, just the word joy. Um, also Christmas carols. I was uh, amazed to see how many Christmas carols actually include the word joy. So joy to the world, good Christian men rejoice. So there's that in there. Uh, we're told that Jesus's birth brings good tidings of comfort and joy. And so while you're filling up the chat feature with things that make you feel joyful, another thing to think about is how Christmas villains are known for their absence of joy. I think about Scrooge, whose name is actually becoming an adjective. I think about Lucy, who shames Charlie Brown for getting a less than stellar Christmas tree. Joyless, right? Even the Grinch, help me out with this one. The Grinch's main character flaw, this joyless creature, is that his heart was what? His heart was two sizes too small. Everything at Christmas seems to hover around the idea of joy. So what gives you joy? Rightfully so. Joy is a big deal. It's a big deal at Christmas. It's a big deal for us as Christians. And so it's kind of cool. I'm imagining right now seeing that chat feature fill up. So here's what I love most about joy. You can't fake it. You can fake a lot of things. You can fake a lot of emotions. You cannot fake joy. Have you ever been around somebody who fakes joy? It just doesn't hold water. And if I can peer into our hearts just for a minute, I think it's why 2020 has been so hard. It's been such a tough year on a lot of us because we've realized we just can't fake it anymore. We can't fake being happy. We can't fake being joyful. And all the emotions that we may have felt this year, disappointment, disengagement, frustration, loneliness, fear, even anger, joy, real joy, is probably closer to the bottom of the list this year than maybe it has been in years past. We've felt in our lives this last several months that gradually um, these certain elements of our lives are outside of our control. The rhythms that we love are still disrupted and in our resistance to form new ones, we find ourselves in this kind of emotional no man's land, this hollow empty place where joy is hard fought at best and a distant memory at worst. So the question I wanna throw your way this morning, besides what makes you feel joyful, is how do you stay joyful when all you feel 
is fearful. And so if you've ever wondered that question, you are in good company. That's where we're going to be this morning. This morning is going to be very good for you. It's what Luke 2 is all about. Last week, executive pastor Dave Short showed us that hope is found when we trust that God is always at work. And we looked at Luke chapter 2, the sweeping view of a worldwide tax to the messy intimacy of a feeding trough, the monumental and the mundane. And we said that God's people can find hope when we trust that God is always at work. So today we're back in Luke chapter 2, and we're looking at a very familiar Christmas scene. Uh, It's one of my favorites. It's stunned shepherds under this starlit sky. Luke starts with this wide-angle cinematic shot of angels breaking the silence, and then he zooms into a nursing mother treasuring thoughts of her infant son. And then he zooms back out to these empty hillsides that transform into revival meetings. And all along, through it all, are the shepherds. This group of people who learn one essential truth about Jesus. And here it is for us this morning. Jesus invites us to trade great fear for great joy. Jesus invites us to trade our great fear for great joy. So this story in Luke 2, hopefully you're there. Luke 2 chapter 8, this story breaks up neatly into two halves. The first half is joy encountered. And then the next half is joy expressed. So Joy encountered. Let's get right to it. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now you can almost hear Linus's voice in there, can't you? Holding his blanket on stage under the spotlights. Well, we see the shepherds first. Luke describes them. He says two things about them. First, They were out living in open country. And then secondly, that they were taking turns in the night watches. Now we're going to back up a little bit here because if you're like me, you probably picture shepherds with this like pleasant pastoral connotations. You think about them as these like gentle, lowly, humble, quiet, introverted people who tenderly care for fluffy little sheep and then maybe recline on a rock and write some lyrical poetry. That may be cute, uh, but that's not really a historically accurate understanding of what shepherds were and what they did. A third century Jewish rabbi put it like this. He says, there is no more despised occupation in the world than that of being a shepherd. Early Jewish writings lumped shepherds into this group of gamblers and tax collectors as jobs you did not want. In fact, because of their long absences and their reputation, when you became a shepherd, you immediately and forever forfeited your rights to stand up as a witness in a legal trial. Your word was suspect. Your character was questionable. Your worth, well, and it's not really that hard to understand. Nomadic shepherds weren't part of a community. They didn't really have a home. They didn't really have a neighborhood. They didn't really belong anywhere. No one really knew them. They didn't have a place. They were kind of rootless. And so... By virtue of their occupation, shepherds were the lowest of the low. Now, all of that translated into a people group, a nomadic people group. 
They were marked by suspicion, raised eyebrows, very unlikely group to contribute anything to society except their one job. Now get this. These shepherds on the hills near Bethlehem had one job, to recognize and raise spotless lambs for the Passover. That's interesting when you think about it. So why do I bring all of that up? It's because of their reaction. The text says that they were filled not with fear, but with great fear. They're very afraid. So in that moment, under the starlit sky, these shepherds were doubly afraid. First thing they were afraid of was the initial fear of the actual event, like what was happening. The silence of midnight broken up by this angelic choir. Just the sheer shock of that. That's like waking up at your alarm blaring full blast and all of the lights in your house turning on at once. So it would probably stop your heart a bit. But then the second fear that they had was when they realized what actually was happening. Because as marvelous and miraculous and monumental as this experience was, the sights and the sounds, at some point it clicked that this was the God of the universe breaking 400 years of silence and he was dropping the veil between heaven and earth and meeting with them. It's interesting to me that when God chose to pull back the curtain of his plan and send Jesus to step into the moving timeline of history, where did he go? He didn't go to the temple. He didn't go to the Bible study, right? He didn't go to the rabbi's brunch. Where did he go? He went where he knew people would be desperate for him. And for a people who live so closely tethered to their sense of personal worthlessness, this command to fear not is deeply profound and deeply personal. I don't think we should minimize this. God's first words in 400 years of silence were to people who lived in perpetual fear, shame, and worthlessness. That's who he chose. Not only that, but did you catch how the angels describe this baby? It's right there in the text. Is he king? Well, yeah, but that's not what he said first. Is he God? Absolutely, but that's not what they said first. Is he a conqueror? Absolutely, but that's not what they said first. It's right there in the text. Verse 11, here's what it says. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, what? A savior who is Christ the Lord. First title, savior, speaks to what he will do. He will save you. We're gonna come back to that in a minute. Second title speaks of his anointing as Messiah. He's Christ which is the Greek word for Messiah. You've read about him all through the prophets. He's the promised one. And then the last one speaks of his divinity, the Lord. He's not just some baby. This is God incarnate, Savior, Christ, the Lord. Here's the idea, guys. 2,000 years later, like we've been through Christmas. You know Christmas. You know how this thing goes. You've read the texts. You've lit the candles. You've attended the services. We need to be very careful that we don't become calloused. We need to be very careful that we don't let 2,000 years of history build up like sediment and numb us from the stunning simplicity of Jesus' birth. Our world is dark. Our world is living in fear, running in shame, flitting from one pleasure to another, not because people aren't nice to each other, not because we've forgotten how to be good neighbors or we've somehow lost the spirit of Christmas or anything like that. Our world is dark because we've made a mess of it, because we are a mess and we need a savior. Shepherds, this fear-wracked, shame-gripped, sin-conscious, small community living on a Judean hillside understood that. And here's why this is important. And I know I'm hitting like really heavy really early on, but I want to be clear right up front. 
Jesus has a crystal clear purpose to save us from the penalty of sin. He is a savior first. This curse that hung over our heads since the garden can now be broken. This haunting fear, this curse that draped over God's people for centuries can now be lifted. This curse that we've taken part in, I've taken part in, you've taken part in, our selfishness, our sin, our rebellion, our curse would be taken up by his strength, laid on his back, and eventually find its way to his cross. This gurgling, cooing baby would grow up to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Unless you think I'm hitting on this too hard, did you catch how intensely personal the angel's message is? Right there in verse 11, he says, for to you this day, like Luke does this all the time. He uses the word today more than any other gospel writer combined. He says it in Jesus' first sermon in Luke chapter four. Jesus says, today I have fulfilled scripture. And then later when he meets Zacchaeus, he says, today salvation has come to this household. And then probably most poignantly when he's on the cross, he says to the thief, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. Like, what's his point? It's like Luke is tapping into God's broken heart for his people. And he's saying, look, today is the day where you could meet Jesus. What are you waiting for? Today is the day. Look at what God's doing. He's led you up to this point. Today is the day. So before we move on, because this scene gets more and more beautiful as it unfolds, I've got to ask you a question. Do you know Jesus as Savior? Do you know him as Savior? Are you trusting him alone to carry the full weight of your personal sin? I have. I realize I've messed up. And so he's got to be my savior. That's the gospel. So let me be clear for a minute. You need Christ. You absolutely need him. You don't need to be a better person. You don't need to work to live a moral life. You don't need to watch sermons online or attend church. You don't need to try harder. All of that's fine. But without a personal relationship with Jesus, it is all just a wash. You can't impress God. You can't earn his favor. All of those other virtues and phrases and sentiments and ideas, they are shadows that dance around the point, but they don't get to the point. We are sinners who need a savior. Without the cross, the manger, it's just this cute, quaint little thing you stick on your mantle. But in the cross, Jesus invites us to trade our great fear at the wrath of God for great joy at the provision of God. So let me join with Luke for just a second and ask you, do you know Jesus as Savior? I know he's a Savior. I know he's mine. But is he yours? As your pastor, or maybe as just the guy you're watching on Facebook this morning, there's nothing more than I want for you is to know the fact that you can have eternity secured because of the work of Christ, but he's got to be yours. Jesus invites us to trade great fear for great joy. So that's the first move of this whole scene, joy encountered, right? But it moves somewhere because these guys didn't stay there. They didn't stay in the field, although that would have been understandable because like they're in the middle of a shift at work, but something happens. Let's pick it up in verse 15. And let's see where they go next. Verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Now here's where the lens narrows. We go from this cold hillside to a feeding trough. And this is the second half of this scene, joy expressed. 
joy expressed. And so there they were, where myriads of angels had just been singing. Now the only thing that's in the sky is these little clouds of breath. Just this empty sky, the soft bleeding of sheep, because they were probably a little shook up too. Stunned. We don't know how long this angelic encounter lasted, but it's easy to imagine that when the angels disappeared, the shepherds are just standing there going, did that just happen? Did I actually just, did you see that? Did I actually see that? It's interesting that the shepherds immediately connect the angel's appearance with God himself. Did you see that in the text? Where it says, we have to go and see this thing that the Lord has shown to us. They immediately and rightly see this as God's personal self-disclosure. They take this as God revealing himself. So out of obedience, they head to town, probably raising a few eyebrows along the way. Remember who shepherds were. Shepherds heading into town late at night. This is kind of like if you could imagine a biker gang riding down Main Street at 2 a.m. looking for a single mom who just gave birth to a newborn baby in an abandoned alley, all the while insisting, no, it's okay, angels told us to come. And you're like, okay, yeah, right, guys. But they get there. And so what happens next? Take a look in verse 17. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what these shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. What a beautiful sentiment that is. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen, or all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Now I want you to see this threefold response here. First, those that they told on their way into town and maybe those neighbors who showed up that were next door to the manger, we don't really know, but they wondered about it. They said, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? Angels showed you this? They told you about this? And then you showed up here? They wondered. That means they just couldn't stop talking about it. Second response is Mary herself. She treasured these things in her heart. That means she turned them over in her mind. She was thinking about the implications of what this would mean. What a tender, beautiful thought that is. I've always loved that one. But then the shepherds themselves, I love this. They just keep going, right? You see that in verse 20. They returned, glorifying and praising God. They just turned that night into like a full-on worship experience. Here's what I want us to see here. The shepherd's response turned from great fear to great joy. That's the first half. And then in the second half of this scene, that great joy makes a great impact. They express it. Here's the point. You know that joy is real in your life when you can't keep it to yourself anymore. Or if you want a more succinct way of putting that, joy encountered always means joy expressed. Always. If you look in God's word, Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't matter. Whenever people have these amazing, like cataclysmic experiences with God, they never keep it to themselves. Why? Because they realize that they have been forever changed. Their circumstances are completely different and their world is completely different. They see everything differently. Joy always starts inward and always goes outward. Now, what I'd like to imagine here, and this is just me like sitting, thinking on it, I'd like to imagine that these shepherds went back and maybe became pastors and theologians or philosophers or scholars or something. That would make a nice ending, wouldn't it? The only problem is the text doesn't say that. In all likelihood, the most possible scenario is they just went back to being shepherds. How'd you like that? Right? You have this life-changing 
experience with the Almighty God and the host of heaven. So you drop your staff, you run to Bethlehem, you see the Savior of the world, you run back to the sheepfold to tell your friends and your boss says, oh, hey, yeah, that's great. Can you make sure you're here in the morning for work? What should we take from that? Two things. One, there's often phenomenal beauty in the common things. But then two, often the best place to make the biggest difference for Christ is right where he's already placed you. I think one way of understanding the shepherd's role in the whole nativity narrative is to see the profound power of an ordinary life extraordinarily lived. Because here's what we do. Okay, here's what I do. I say things like this. I say, God, if you could change my circumstances, then I'll find joy. You ever said that this year? God, if you do this, then I'll do this. God, if this happens, then this happens. So I'm going to leave you in charge of the first move and then I'll follow. And it's natural to talk like that because it's very human. The only trouble is that's not how God does business. You look all across the Bible, you look at Moses, Joseph, David, even Jesus when he's in the garden. The pattern is never change brings joy. The pattern is always joy changes me. God may not want to change your circumstances. Maybe he wants to redeem your circumstances. Maybe God doesn't want to lift you out of something. Maybe he wants to preserve you through something. That's not 2020 in a nutshell. I don't know what is. Here's what else, what else I love about the way the shepherds expressed their joy. They were clear about it. And let me make sure you catch this. It's right there in verse 17 and verse 19. Almost the exact same phrase. What did they do? What did they actually say? There's a lesson about evangelism and discipleship here. They made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. That's verse 17. And almost the exact same thing there at the end in verse 20 as they had heard and seen, as it has been told to them. Like put another way, they went right back to their rhythms and spaces of their everyday lives and they made much of Jesus every day to everyone. That's all they're doing. This is just my sanctified imagination, but I like to imagine that these shepherds went back to the sheepfold, work resumed for them, life happened. These mundane things that characterize their life, that characterize our lives. But every time around a fireside, when stories come up, as stories often do in fireplaces and campfires, every time these guys got the opportunity, they talked about Jesus. Every time they got the opportunity, they told this story, this pure, simple gospel. We're sinners. Angels told us to go see the Savior. We saw him and worshiped him. And now we've got joy that we can't keep a lid on. I love how beautiful that scene is. So what do we do with this? Something I've noticed recently in a lot of churches and in a lot of Christians, and I sometimes even see it in myself, is that when it comes time to expressing my joy in the gospel, or really even just expressing the gospel, we fall victim to one of two extremes. And I want to name them for you because I want to help you have a meaningful Christmas this year. So here's where we miss it. Extreme number one, we either cloud the gospel or we complicate it. Okay, so let's go with clouding the gospel first. Cloud the gospel, what does that mean? We cloud the gospel whenever we put things in front of it or package it in a way that try to make it more palatable, but also obscures it from its power, right? We reduce the gospel to these quaint sounding sentiments, these good buzzwords or these like trendy aphorisms that actually obscure the real issue. We cloud the gospel. What do I mean? 
So this is something that happened to me this last week. Um, I was cruising through Facebook and I was kind of looking at different um, churches and what they were doing for Christmas because I like to learn, right? Just like you do. And I stumbled across this um, sermon from a, from a preacher and I'm not going to tell you who it was because it doesn't really matter, but he was talking about Christmas and I'm going, all right, I want to see how he talks about this. And so he's getting right at that spot in his message where like, you know, all the intro stuff is over. Like he had taught the text well and he's going, all right, now this is what Christmas is all about. I'm like, all right, how's he going to do this? And he said three statements that just dropped my jaw. First statement was, Jesus came to show us the way to live. And I go, well, yeah, like that's true, but that's not the main reason. And then he said, Jesus came to spread light, that we would spread light to others. And I go, okay, well, that sounds really cool, but like it's a little nebulous. And then he says, Christmas is about joining the Prince of Peace and spreading peace. And I go, yeah, but how? Like that's incomplete. And I go, That's missing something very critical. So speaking 70 years after this scene, this nativity scene, Paul picks up on this idea of how do you keep the gospel clear? Here's what he says to the Colossians. He calls the gospel the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. Did you hear it in there? He says, him we proclaim, warning and teaching everyone. Him we proclaim. Now, I love George Bailey. And I love Buddy the Elf. But that's not Christmas. That's not what the shepherds talked about. I'm genuinely worried that in these times of cultural upheaval, so many people are seeking and settling for a version of Christianity without Christ. And I catch whispers of it all the time. We are well-informed, we are well-meaning, and we are well-behaved, but are we changed? This Christmas, let's not cloud the gospel. It's relevant enough on its own, so we've got to be clear. So if clouding the gospel is one extreme, what's the other? Complicating the gospel. We complicate the gospel whenever we add things to it. So it's like Jesus plus, okay? Like Jesus plus this list of rules. That's called legalism and it's not the gospel. Some of you have come out of a church experience or a church background like that. Legalism is often just pride masquerading as theological rigor and spiritual fervor. The truth is when Jesus gets into your life, the last place he wants to start is changing your behavior. He he starts with your heart. He changes everything on the inside first. Well-meaning Christians are so often guilty of complicating the obvious and trivializing the momentous, right? Don't complicate the gospel. So here it is. Jesus came and he came for you and he came because he loves you. He loves you exactly as you are, not as you should be. He sees you everything that you want to hide. He sees all of your imperfections, all your secrets, all your hidden faults, all of your deep regrets. And he asks you to believe the unbelievable truth that you can have hope in this life and security for the life to come if you would just follow him. And that's why Paul says, again, he picks up on this theme where he says, I resolve to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. One message, one burning, all-consuming passion, one cause to live for. And so if you're watching this morning and you're not sure where you stand with Jesus, you're like, I don't know, am I saved? Am I not saved? Do I, if, 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 if something happened, right, where do I stand with God? There's a lot of questions that surround the Christian faith, but let me plead with you. Don't let all the questions or all the answers that the questions that you don't have 
prevent you from answering the one question that you need to ask is, do you know Jesus? Not do you know about him? Not do you go to church? Not are you a good person? Do you know him? Our world does not need Christians with heads full of all the right answers. Our world needs Christians with hearts full of love for Christ. So, practically, if expressing our joy is part of how we trade this great fear for great joy, how does God want us to do that? And so I want to close with just three quick ways this Christmas that you can trade your great fear for great joy. And uh, just to set you up, we're going to follow the shepherd's example, okay? So, tip number one. If it's not about clouding the gospel and it's not about complicating the gospel, what do I do to keep my gospel expression clear? Tip number one, worship. Worship. Worship is like the kryptonite for fear. It chases fear away because worship draws attention from what's right in front of us to who is always over us. Now, something you've got to understand about worship. Worship rule number one is worship is never a spectator sport. You can't sit and watch it, right? This isn't like a concert that you can sit back in a chair and and just look at. Worship is really hard these days. Okay, I'm sure you feel that because you're not in this room this morning. You're not sitting here. There's no band up on stage for you. There's no choir behind me. And so it's very easy to slip into this behavior that starts to view worship as something we spectate or we critique or we observe or we form opinion. No, 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 no. The minute you step out of worship, you become a spectator and you stop doing it. And that's not what the shepherds did. And think of the environment they were worshiping in. Smelled bad, looked bad, sounded bad. Oh my goodness. But when you put your focus on the right thing, when it's about Christ, and it's about what Jesus wants to do in and through your life, worship is just this natural reflex. Just to put a really fine point on it, I am deeply, absolutely, completely convinced that one of the things that God is doing in these days is teaching the church what true worship is. And if you want to trade great fear for great joy, now is the time to worship God simply, purely, without all the bells and whistles, regardless of your circumstances. And so that's tip number one. If you want to trade your great fear for great joy, worship Him. Tip number two, know your story and tell your story. Know your story and tell your story. You've heard me say this a lot. The first Christians are storytellers and their stories were simple. Here's what Jesus did. Here's how he's changing my life. Your story doesn't have to be complex, but it absolutely has to be true. You got to know it, but you also got to tell your story. Studies show that around Christmas time, people are more open to faith conversations than any other time of year. That means that your friends and neighbors who don't know Jesus or people who have no faith background, this time of year they're going, I really do wonder about what is after this life. I wonder what this life is about. Do I have purpose? Do I have meaning? Am I going someplace? Is there, is a, if, is there a God who loves me? And so if you know your story, you can start praying, God, give me opportunities to tell my story. Now, those are super dangerous prayers. Because when you start to pray like that, God's going to give you opportunities. It's going to get real. It's going to get uncomfortable. But it's also going to get very beautiful. So if you're looking for a way where you can know your story so that you can tell your story, keep your eyes peeled for our Rooted experiences coming up after the first of the year. I went through Rooted. It's a great opportunity to learn how to understand your own faith story better. So that's tip number two. Know your story and tell your story. Tip number three, and this is my favorite, use Jesus's name. Use Jesus's name when you tell your story. 
when you pray, when you talk about why you have joy when you shouldn't. It's the most irrational emotion you could possibly feel right now is joy, which is why we should feel it completely. Use Jesus's name. It's my experience, and this may be yours too, that faith in Jesus is caught more than taught. Nobody attended Jesus. Nobody registered for Jesus. They were introduced to him by people who knew him. I believe very deeply that seeing Jesus at work in the lives of ordinary people, just like you and me, can change our world. And here at North Canton Chapel, we just say that means making much of Jesus every day to everyone. And it doesn't matter if you're a first century shepherd or you're a 21st century whatever. Jesus invites you to trade your great fear for great joy. Joy in a joyless year. Scrooge, Lucy, and Mr. Grinch, right? Jesus' birth is this slow crescendo that builds across time, rolling over the centuries like this big drum roll. It ends not with a big cymbal crash, but with a whisper. Instead of a stage, we get a stall. Instead of the heavenly sounds of a temple, we get cows mooing in a stable. And instead of a press release to spread the news, we get these stunned shepherds. The hope of the world, God's perfect plan, the climax of his redemptive vision, born to a couple on welfare, sheltering themselves in a back alley of an obscure town, a scene only attended by a small group of outcasts and maybe a couple of neighbors who are wondering what all the commotion was about. And so I want to hit this question again because it's so important. Christmas should not just be quaint for you. It needs to be personal for you. Do you know Jesus? Are you willing to surrender and say, okay, I've tried it my way. I'd rather have your way. To put your faith in a baby. It's a very strange thing to do. But it's true today. It was true then. And it's always going to be there that Jesus invites us to trade our great fear for great joy. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this truth. We thank you that you saw fit in this weird way to step into time, this obscure place. You brought together a ragtag group of shepherds to an unknown couple in an obscure village, all to win us back for yourself. So that we wouldn't have to live in fear, in hopelessness, in shame, but so that we could live in joy. Father, I thank you for this time of year. I know this is a tough one. So will you carry us? Carry us where we need to go. We love you. We say thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces, making much of Jesus every day to everyone.